We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4. Last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus. We are in a series this semester on who is the real Jesus. And we talked about how um, the real Jesus, as revealed in the scriptures, is often surprising. And pretty much everybody, evangelicals, conservatives, liberals, pretty much everybody tends to read what they want to read in the scriptures. They tend to like certain passages and avoid other passages and therefore fail to be confronted as they should be with the full picture of who Jesus really is. And I think when you connect Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, as Matthew does uh, by this little Greek word that means then or immediately then, um, you see that what Matthew is doing is saying, be careful that you don't just live in Matthew chapter 3, the idea of the baptism of Jesus, what we looked at last week, where the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and everything is glorious, and the spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Man, this is great. Isn't this what the Christian life is all about? Let's just stay there. Let's live there. Let's get back there if we're not there right now. If we don't feel that sense of affirmation from God right now, how can we get back there? But Matthew goes on, as a matter of fact, not just Matthew, but it says the same spirit that descended upon Jesus and affirmed and confirmed for him that he is the son of God, the messianic king, also confirms for him that he is the suffering servant. And it says that same spirit immediately leads him into the desert to be tempted. Mark's gospel actually uses a stronger Greek word. It doesn't say he was led. It says he was driven by the spirit into the desert to be tempted. And both of those accounts have that little word that means immediately. In other words, these two events are connected. Now, why is this important? And why is this passage important? I'll tell you a couple things that are really interesting. There are not very many stories from the life of Jesus that appear in all four Gospels. Even the virgin birth only makes it into two of the Gospels. Yet this story about the temptations of Jesus in the desert appears in all four. And there are no other witnesses to what happened in the desert except Jesus and the devil. Which means if this is in all four Gospels, Jesus must have told his disciples about it. What that means is Jesus considered this episode very important. So important that he told people about it. And the early church considered it so important that they put it in all four Gospels. Right at the beginning, as if to say, you're not going to understand Jesus, you're not going to understand the Christian life unless you understand how the baptism and the temptation fit together. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Let's read the passage. If you have the little green sheet, um, the bottom there. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's one of the great um, understated things in the Bible. The tempter came to him. And it's, it's not ridiculous. Actually, the, you know, we don't know what kind of fast it was. The Jews had all kinds of fasts. Some of them lasted during the day, and then at night they would eat. Some of them were a fast from food, but not from water. We don't know the exact details. But we do know that it was a fast that made him hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, or actually the Greek word for if doesn't make it in doubt. It's more has the force of since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If, or more likely, since you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then Satan himself quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that Jesus considered this important to tell us and that the early church confirmed that this passage is very important. And so we pray that you would teach us tonight. Why is it so important that we understand this? How does this help us understand who you are? How does this help us understand the Christian life? How does this give us grace to follow you and encouragement to follow you? We ask you to help us. Send your spirit to open our hearts, not just to understand, but to do what we find in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did I pass out the little outlines? I did, right? Good. Okay, good. Let me, um, let me tell you. Okay, so why is this important? Uh, you know, the, 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 it's not just important to the early church. It's not just important to Jesus. It's important to us, guys. Because the church continually continually fails, particularly in the area of understanding that baptism and trials, suffering and glory go hand in hand. We are still tempted and often fail when the opportunity comes to use power to get what we want rather than to do God's will. So many of the things that bother people about evangelical Christians come from a failure to understand how Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 not only go together, but offer for us a paradigm or a model for what the Christian life is like. The kinds of things that you hear from people who aren't Christians when they think about evangelical Christians in particular are, they're not in touch with reality. And particularly, they're not in touch with suffering. They tend to just sort of feel like they need to put a little smiley face on everything. The other thing that you hear sometimes is they want to take power and tell everybody what they're supposed to do. And they will resort to politics and manipulation, whatever it takes to have their will be done. Both of those concerns, both of those issues are dealt with by this passage. And if we don't deal with this passage, it's no wonder that we fall into both of those ideas. The misuse of power and the failure to embrace the call that following Jesus means following one who was tempted and one who suffered. Now, we should have gotten this from the baptism. We should have got this from the baptism. You see, even back in the, the passage before this, in Matthew chapter 3, 
when the voice speaks, you remember Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? And that voice that the spirit that, the, that, the, that, that speaks from heaven actually is a combination of quoting both Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Now, the reason that's important is that Psalm 2 is a Davidic, royal, messianic psalm. Everybody in in the Jewish world knew that this psalm spoke about the king who was to come. The greater son of David, who would be the king to sit on the throne and put all things right. And so when the voice speaks that to Jesus, it's saying, here he is. The Messianic King. Now, you remember me saying that the voice was only heard by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself. But what you have there is this confirmation that he is the Messianic King. The voice from heaven says it. But the voice doesn't just quote Psalm 2. It also quotes Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is one of the famous suffering servant songs from Isaiah. And so what the voice is saying is that the messianic king and the suffering servant are the same person, Jesus himself. And Jesus shows us by what happens next in Matthew chapter 4 that he understands this. He understands this is his call and he embraces it. The way that he responds to Satan's temptations, which are basically temptations to be the messianic king without being the suffering servant, Every one of them, he responds by quoting scripture and saying, no, I will not turn away from the calling that God has given me. And I I think really, you know, the first thing that we need to see is this passage is giving us a realistic picture of the Christian life. Again, you know, the affirmation of the voice is followed immediately by the spirit driving Jesus into the desert to face temptations. And really, you know, not only is the devil tempting him to be the messianic king without suffering, he's also, Satan is also continually calling into question, what does it really mean to be a son of God? What does it really mean to be a son of God? And I would submit to you that that is the exact pattern that every Christian faces. There are times when God assures us that we are his children. As a matter of fact, Paul in the letter to the Galatians says that, the, that Jesus came to make us sons and daughters of God. And then he goes on after that and says the spirit was sent so that we would feel like sons and daughters of God. It's a very important thing, scripturally speaking. And it's a pretty strong statement to say that the reason the spirit came was so that we would feel like sons and daughters. There are times when we feel that very powerfully. But there are also times when we really wonder because we experience things that we don't think sons and daughters of God should experience. And when we feel that, sometimes we wonder, am I really a child of God? Often the problem is we misunderstand what does it mean to be a child of God and what is the normal experience of one who is a son of God. And Jesus here is showing us That the normal experience of a son or a daughter of God is first baptism, then trials. First glory, and then suffering. Now this is vital to understand if you would live for very long as a Christian. 
Because it has everything to do with how you will respond when the suffering comes. If you don't understand what this text is teaching, if I don't understand what this text is teaching, when trials come, I will inevitably think that I mustn't, maybe I'm not really being in God's will. Or maybe I'm not spirit-led. And yet the irony is, of course, that the spirit is the very one who leads Jesus into the place where he is tested and tempted. So we better revise what we think it means to be spirit-led. Okay? This passage teaches that the more God blesses you, the more you should expect to struggle. And it teaches that if you're not struggling, you're probably not being led by the Spirit. And again, this isn't just something that Jesus taught his disciples. It's something the early church said, hey, I want to make sure everybody that reads about Jesus and hears about Jesus knows this. A guy that I respect immensely, a spiritual father to me and, and, and others that I love, Jack Miller used to say this, that living by faith feels like death. That's, that's a pretty radical idea. I will tell you that when I've, when I've tried to explain that to Christians, I usually just kind of get this kind of dumbfounded stare. They don't know what to do with that. I remember I've told you this story about a guy who wrote this book on dating, actually it was on courtship, called Choosing God's Best. And he called me up because he wanted me to bring all of our college students to this big, you know, big rally that they were having at a big church here in town. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about, about this book, Choosing God's Best. Just the title just sort of put me off. And I, I was kind of saying, tell me, what is this about? And he says, well, you know, it's about how there are good things, but then there's God's best things. I'm like, really? Okay. Well, how do you know what God's best is? He says, well, I really like Henry Blackaby and experiencing God and how basically you pray in your heart and God gives you a peace and then you know what you should do. And that's really the way you're led into knowing what God's best is. I said, really? I kind of, I kind of found that living by faith feels like death. And there was just this silence on the other end of the phone. It's like it just completely blew this guy's category. He said, well, after all, you know, we've got, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems to me like he's obviously in God's will. He's praying, you know, for this cup to pass. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It doesn't seem like, you know, he's just praying and has this wonderful, nice, gentle peace in his heart that helps him know that he's supposed to go to the cross. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how you, where you get this idea that living by faith will always feel like wonderful and happy and will make you feel great, especially initially. I mean, why does the Bible describe following Jesus as the narrow road? Why do the Psalms say, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death? Living by faith feels like death. Worldliness feels like life but in the end leads to death. And Jesus knew about that, didn't he? See, too often I find we're trying to either stay in the place of hearing the voice over and over and over again, or we're trying to get back to the mountaintop where we hear the voice saying, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And we don't want to leave and we don't understand that the Christian life was never promised to be a continual mountaintop experience. One of my friends who did RUF for years down at UT in Austin, so he would say the real UT, but I won't try to make that argument here. He used to say, you know, basically every student I ever meet with, sit down for a cup of coffee, every one of them is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in junior high camp. And they, they really don't understand that 
Christian maturity is often the point at which you really begin to struggle and you really begin to doubt. Often, initially, God gives you, when you first become a Christian, because you don't really know anything at all about who God is and what he's like, often God, in his grace, condescends and gives you an overabundance of good feelings. But his general way of drawing you deeper and drawing you to a deeper dependence upon him is to bring you through times of trial and times of suffering and times of wondering where he is. I could demonstrate that so clearly from the scriptures, from the Psalms, from the history of the church, so many different places. Uh, But this passage, that's one of the things that it's getting at here. Baptism and then temptation is the normal experience. And the reason I say it's the normal experience is because this is not just a story that Jesus endured. Very deliberately, Matthew in particular is showing that this thing that Jesus is experiencing is what Israel experienced. There are all kinds of parallels between Israel's wandering in the desert and being tested and Jesus' test here in the desert. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Israel is often called God's son in the Old Testament. And yet God's son Israel, after the exodus, after the deliverance, was sent into the desert and was tested time and time again. And every time they failed the test. Jesus now comes to not only die in the place of sinners, but to live the obedient, perfect life of submission to God's will that God's children should live. And he very much shows that he understands that because every passage that he quotes to the devil when the temptations come is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, or 8. Jesus quotes only from God's sermon to his people saying, this is what I was doing in making you wander around in the desert. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is showing, I understand what God was doing and I embrace it as my own. And at every point at which God's children have failed, I have submitted to the will of God. So Jesus is saying by this passage, I understand this is the normal Christian life and I'm going to embrace it and live it. Because God's other children have failed and continue to fail miserably. So you see, this passage is not just a story about something that happened to Jesus. Jesus and Matthew both say this is the normal experience for God's children. It was the normal experience of God's children in the Old Testament. It's the normal experience now. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, listen, no servant is greater than his master. No servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. In other words, if you follow a crucified God, what do you expect your life to feel like? The book of Hebrews brings this out in a slightly different way, but a a passage that I I love and find great, great comfort in, where it says we need to go to Jesus. Jesus was crucified outside of the city gate in the place of shame. Let us go to him there. Embrace him there and embrace the calling. To follow a crucified Savior means that you will never be thought of well by the world. Like Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. Jesus is living the life that Israel should have lived. He is fulfilling what Israel failed to do in the desert. 
That's good news. That's good news. Jesus is not just showing us this is the normal Christian life. He's saying this is the normal Christian life that I can actually live on your behalf. He also is showing that he understands the voice of the baptism that quotes from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. By refusing the temptations to have kingly glory without a cross, Jesus shows that he understands and embraces his calling to suffer. What this means is, you need to understand, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, he understood what he was called to do. That means that he's intentional in the life he lives. That means Jesus did not just sort of make a, make a misstep and fall into the hands of authorities and end up getting himself killed. Jesus drives to the cross. Everything he does is intentional. We're going to see uh, next week when we look, well, not next week, but the week after, we'll look at Jesus turning water into wine. And you'll see again, over and over again, Jesus knows what he's doing and where he's going, and it comes out in what he says and what he does over and over again. In other words, D.A. Carson, great New Testament commentator, says this, In being baptized, Jesus demonstrates his character as a servant and thus his determination to do his assigned work of dying. And every time he says no to Satan, he re-embraces his calling. And I tell you, this is an interesting thing for us to think about. Whenever we face temptation, we have the opportunity to embrace the calling of God or to reject it. Do you, do you understand that? I don't know if we, if we tend to see things that, that big that way. We tend to think of temptations, I don't know, we don't tend to think of them as either opportunities to embrace the calling of God or opportunities to say, no, God, I will not want to be a part of your kingdom. Rosemary Miller, Jack's wife, used to say, whenever we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, what we really are praying is, Lord, dismantle my kingdom. And every time temptations come, you have the opportunity to embrace your kingdom or God's kingdom. And you can't have it both ways. Jesus says this kind of thing all the time, right? You can't serve God and mammon. James talks about the, the, the difficulty of being a double-minded person. It, 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 it makes you more miserable than you can imagine. But Jesus embraces his calling. He is the messianic king. He is the suffering servant. Now, what do we look? Let's look at the, the temptations in more detail and see what we can learn about them. Look, look here. Um, did I even read all these passages? Did I read the... The temptations? Yeah, I did. Where did I, I lost my little uh, page. Here it is. Sorry. I lost my, my scripture here. The, the, the power over weakness is what's get, gotten out in the first temptation. Look at verse 3. The tempter comes to him and says, If you are, or since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the first temptation to turn bread in, stones into bread is a temptation to use his sonship in a way inconsistent with his God-ordained mission. And you may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the interesting thing is, Jesus often faces this same taunt. As a matter of fact, he's going to face this same taunt at the cross. He's going to hear the same words. If you are the Son of God, then get down off this cross. In other words, what Jesus is demonstrating here by refusing this request of Satan is he's saying, I have given up my right 
to use my power for my own comfort and my own good. You'll never understand Jesus unless you understand that. You'll never understand the cross unless you understand that. Jesus could have, could have gotten down off that cross. He could have, with his pinky, sent, brought down legions of angels to wipe out everybody that was casting insults upon him, spitting upon him, abusing him. But he refused to do it because God called him to suffer. And he embraced that. He didn't enjoy it, but he embraced it. And it's, it, it's the same thing here. He's being tempted to fill a need by his own power. And the thing is, it's a real need. He's hungry. It's a real need. He's hungry. But Jesus knows that it's more important to trust God and his provision. The fascinating thing is, this is exactly what Israel did not get in the wandering in the desert. Over and over again, over and over again, they complain about God's provision. And yet God does not back down. He continually teaches them, you have to trust me. There's no other way. In Deuteronomy, um, God says this, and this is the section that Jesus is quoting from. It's in Deuteronomy 8, and I put it at the bottom of the page there. This is the passage where God says, here's what I was doing having you wander around in the desert. Listen to this. Remember, Moses says, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, Jesus doesn't quote this passage because he goes, oh, here's something about bread. I know a scripture about bread. (laughs) You know, it's not just like word association and out pops this verse. Jesus is saying, I understand that the ultimate issue is, will you trust God or will you trust your ability to provide? Will you be content with what God has given you? And Jesus says, I will. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm hungry and I have the ability to fix this. And yet, because of my mission, I know that I need to trust God rather than using my power to take care of my needs. Israel failed to learn dependence. Jesus, Jesus passes the test. And you have to ask, how often are you tempted to provide for your own needs rather than trust God? And how do you look to yourself? How do I look to myself to provide for our needs? I'll give you all kinds of examples. Lust, isn't lust always about that? I have to have this or I'll die. The drive for money, the drive for prestige, schmoozing. <laughs> people, people all the time say, man, you need to do a convo on networking because we seem to kind of get this, this, this model from, from at least the music business school that the only way you can make it in this world is to schmooze. And I will tell you that that's actually probably what you're going to get from every field. <laughs> but how, how as a Christian do you, do you reconcile trusting God and caring for people rather than just using people with the idea that if you're really going to make it and get a job when you get out of here, you've got to use the connections that you have and make connections and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have time to, 
deal with that fully tonight, only to say you need to think about it. You need to at least begin to ask the question, what does it mean to trust God versus trusting yourself? I love Bart Simpson's prayer where he says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. And I wonder how often that's really the prayer of our heart. You know, the Jews actually used to say grace after the meal. You know that? They used to say grace after the meal because there's a verse in the Psalms that says, Lord, help us not to forget you when our bellies are full. And so often, so often, we want to keep our bellies full so that we don't really have to depend on God. We, oh, we, we say that we want to trust God, but, but we really want to trust God only as a last resort. It's kind of on the back burner. But often we don't ever even want to want to depend on God because if, what if we depend on God and find that he's not really there the way we think he'll be there? So it's kind of like we keep that as a card, like our trump card that we never play. And then we wonder why we don't ever seem to experience very much of what it means to live by faith. If we only ever get, let ourselves be put in situations where we know that we can take care of ourselves, I mean, how do you ever expect to learn to live by faith? And, you know, by this point in your life, you have a pretty good idea of the things that you're going to fall flat on your face trying and the things that you can do well. And, and, you know, could God actually call you to do something that you're not very good at so that you would learn that he can give grace or that his grace is made perfect in your weakness? I don't know. Do we embrace that, that verse, what Paul talks about there in 2 Corinthians? You know, Satan's great strategy is always to confuse you about the nature of sonship. By getting you to regard Jesus as the example rather than your substitute, to make you believe that God's love for you is based on what you do rather than seeing what God, Jesus does demonstrating God's love for you. And, And it comes down to this. If you see Jesus only as your example of what to do and you don't see him as the one who lived and died in your place, then when when things happen that you don't like, you'll always be saying, I deserve better. I'll des- I deserve better. And you'll be mad at God. Or you'll say, I deserve this. And you'll be mad at yourself. When you're suffering, does your, does your heart run to, I deserve better. Or I deserve this. I deserve this. I deserve to be suffering right now. Both of those are an indication that you don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be your substitute, and thus you don't really understand what does it mean to be an accepted son and daughter of God, fully accepted in the beloved. Well, let me go to the next temptation. Presumption over faith. Now here, Satan quotes scripture, particularly Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But Jesus recalls verse 10. He doesn't quote verse 10, but he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy that shows that Jesus understands that Satan is misusing Psalm 91, 11, and 12, and Satan's misusing it by leaving out verse 10. The point of Psalm 91 is trusting God, not testing him. But Satan takes verse 11 and 12 and says, hey, throw yourself from the temple. God will tell his angels to, to catch you and to take care of you. He won't even let the one who trusts in him dash his foot across the stone. And, and Jesus says, well, the whole point of Psalm 91, Satan, is that you shouldn't test your God. He's trustworthy. You don't need to continually put him to the test. Jesus, God has put himself to the test. And he's proven his love and his faithfulness. Do you know that? 
See, this is a fascinating thing. In, um, in the book of Hebrews, it says that God swore an oath, swore an oath, so that we would know, be absolutely sure that he can be f- trusted and reliable. Jo- God doesn't need to swear oaths. Why do we swear oaths on the Bible in a court of law? We're hoping that, you know, maybe some fear of God will keep us from lying. We, we swear oaths because we're inherently not trustworthy people. God does not need to swear an oath, but he does it anyway to give you extra confirmation that he's reliable. Not only does God swear an oath, but he sends his son to live and die in our place. As it says in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Part of what's going on at the cross is God is putting himself to the test. And he has proved faithful. You have no need to put God to the test, yet we do it all the time. Oh, no, God, that you've called me to do this, but I don't know. I'm not really sure. Maybe if you do this, 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 and this, exactly as I prescribe, then I'll believe you're true, and I'll believe your word, and I'll actually do what you say. You ever do those kind of, fall into those kind of games with God? You ever fall into that idea, well, you know, Gideon put out that fleece. Gideon should never have put out a fleece. Christians should never put out a fleece and test God. When God tells you to do something, if God says do it, you should do it. And God can be trusted. He's proven that by sending Jesus to live and die in our place. Is your faith faith or is it presumption? I think one of the the, the ways that this question gets raised is when God says no to what you pray for. Can God say no when you pray about things? Some people feel like, if you really pray, that prayer is a way to manipulate God and to kind of force him to do what you want. And if you pray with enough confidence, he has to do what you want. It's ridiculous. What's the difference between faith and presumption? That's what that second temptation is about. The third one is about glory without suffering. Now, in this temptation, it's like Satan doesn't care to be subtle at all. He says, here's what I want. I want you to bow down and worship me. And, And it seems ridiculous, but what you need to understand, the reason this is a real temptation It's because Jesus is not looking forward to the cross. He's not looking forward to the cross. He's embraced it as his calling, but he's not excited about it at one level. Yes, it's for the joy set before him, the joy of redeeming a people for himself that he goes on. The the scriptures talk about that in the book of Hebrews. But the cross itself is something he will do anything to avoid if only God would allow him. But he won't. And he knows that and he submits to it. In this temptation, what, God, what Satan is saying is, hey, there is a way for you to have all of the messianic glory that's been promised to you without a cross. I can give it to you. He wants to offer Jesus kingship without suffering, without servanthood. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which is a passage about idolatry, and then adds, and him only shall you serve. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. To show that he understands his role as a servant. He adds that, serve him. Worship means serve. It's actually one of the words for worship means to prostrate yourself, to serve him. And Jesus understands that. He resists in this temptation, the temptation to be the kind of Messiah that the Jews want. And the the kind of Messiah, I'm afraid to say, many of us want as well. A Messiah who will do our bidding, who will be at our beck and call, who will be God on a leash. Jesus is showing you here he will not be that kind of God. 
let me get to the conclusion. Satan leaves in verse 10, but you need to understand he's going to be back. He doesn't quit attacking Jesus. As a matter of fact, Satan later is going to use Peter to tempt Jesus the very same way. Right after Peter confesses, you are the Christ. Later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 16, immediately after Peter makes that confession, Jesus says, great, you finally get it. Now let me, let me explain to you, that I'm, the, I'm the Messiah, and that means I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter says, no, no, you're the Messianic king. We're going to Jerusalem to take over. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and that language, get behind me, Satan, is the language of disgust. The, the very idea that I would turn away from my calling to suffer and die is, is disgusting to me. It's strong. It's strong. But let me tell you, it was harder for Jesus to resist that temptation the second time and the third time. It was harder in Matthew chapter 16 than it was here in the desert. And it will be harder, even harder, in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says that his sweat was like great drops of blood. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience by suffering, that his temptations got harder and harder and harder. We think we know what it means to be tempted. How do you know what it means to be tempted when you give in like that? Imagine being tempted for 33 years, never giving in. And Jesus still perseveres. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he puts us above even his own comfort. Two more points, and we'll close with this. The battle with the devil is different than you may think it is. Now, let me just say this. We're going to talk about Satan more, so I'll say this, just one one sentence. Beware of your Western, modern, pseudo-scientific worldview that says... How can we believe in a personal devil? This is, this is silly. All I will tell you is, the only people that don't believe in supernatural evil are late modern Western individualists. We're in the minority of all the cultures of the world and all the periods of history. And in most places in the world where the church is growing, this is a no-brainer. And I'm not sure that we really have understood that if we reject what the Bible teaches about devil, we can't make sense of the evil in this world. You can't make sense of how evil things are in this world if you don't have an understanding that evil is bigger than evil human beings. But we'll talk about that more later. What does is, what is battling the devil really look like? See, we often think that spiritual warfare is these big kind of power struggles and And so many of the books on spiritual warfare, and when I talk to students that want to talk about spiritual warfare, they completely miss what it's about. Satan, the accuser, is the father of lies. He's not just this magician who's doing sort of all these wonderful things. It's not like the exorcist. It's not like Linda Blair, you know, and the head spinning around and green vomit and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you all haven't seen The Exorcist. I had a bunch of friends. We used to watch The Exorcist all the time in college because I had this buddy who was a film scoring major, and he just thought that was the greatest film score ever. And it's a pretty amazing film score. You just listen to it and it freaks you out. But, but that's not, that's not, that Hollywood stuff is not the way Satan usually works. We often are distracted by sort of this, you know, that kind of, you know, 
technicolor, wild kind of stuff, and we miss the insidious ways that Satan continually works to undermine our understanding of what it means to be a child of God. The main assault of Satan is to get Jesus to be a king without being a suffering servant. And he does the same thing to us all the time. He says, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to be uncomfortable. Why would you take up a cross and follow Jesus? Don't get so carried away by all this religion stuff that it actually costs you your hopes and your dreams and your comfort and your cool. Why would you, why would you do that? You don't have to do that. You can be a fine, respectable Christian. Make a lot of money. Give 10% to the church. That's, not, that's fine. You know, that'll make everybody think that you're charitable and a nice person. You'll feel better about yourself. But, but don't, don't get carried away by this stuff. This dying stuff and laying down your life and laying down your dreams and your hopes. And don't get... Do you, do you recognize those temptations? Have you heard those temptations? You need to learn how to fight against the devil, too. And one of the things in RUF that we care so much about is that you learn to use the Scripture and you learn to use it in its context. When Jesus says, but the Scripture also says, he teaches us one of the most important principles, which is this. Scripture interprets Scripture. And the best way you'll understand any one passage of Scripture is to understand more and more other passages of Scripture. Doesn't mean that this is easy to figure out how some of these things fit together, but it does mean that you need to be soaking in the Scripture because the more Scripture you know, the more Scripture you understand, the more time you take to actually dig into it and try and figure out what the heck is this talking about, the better prepared you'll be to resist the assaults of Satan because you'll know, how can, I, how can this make sense? Suffering without glory? It never works that way. And the more Scripture you know, the more you'll see, well, Of course, it's obvious. It never works that way. So I I do pray. It's one of the reasons that in RUF we we value the preaching of the Word. And in our small groups, we value getting into the Word. It's important. It's it's, it's, It's the battle. It's the battle. It's the weapon that we have. It's one of the most important things that we hope to teach you in your time in RUF. Well, let me pray for us. Jesus, we do thank you that you here not only teach us and model for us that the Christian life is about trials and temptation, but you also show us that you, that you persevered and did not give in to temptation. Therefore, therefore, Jesus, we can be encouraged even when we fail. Because, Lord, who of us in this room stands up well against you as a model? Lord, we fail so miserably. We thank you. Thank you that you're patient. We thank you that you fought the huge battles so that we can have courage to fight the battles that come into our life. To know that you will never leave us or forsake us even when we fail. Lord, gives us such great courage and great freedom. We don't have to do all this stuff just right. And Lord, may that encourage us. May we repent of our perfectionism that tells us, that lies to us and says, if we can't do it perfect, why do it at all? Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that you've lived the perfect life. Therefore, it's okay for us to do the best we can. But Lord, I pray that we would never content ourselves with how obedient we are, but we would continually strive 
to die to self more and more. To resist and to even to identify the temptations of Satan. To think that we can have life in you without death. To think that we can have glory without suffering. To think that we can really know who you are without knowing you in your sufferings. Forgive us, Lord. Give us courage. Help us to love you, to follow you, to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.